As we kick off this series this morning talking about questions, trying to answer some questions, I've got a question for you. How many of you in the last 24 hours have had a nagging question you had to Google the answer to? Would you just show of hands? How many of you had like five of those in the last 24? Every 24 hours for me, I have a number of those. Now, Google has received lots of questions over the years, and as you can imagine, plenty of strange ones. Uh, I recently read an article called 23 of the Weirdest Google Searches, and I thought I would just share a few of those with you this morning, if that's okay. Like this one. Who would win in a fight between a grilled cheese and a taco? Don't you want to meet the person who's, who's pondering that question? Uh, by the way, I thought about this. The answer is the grilled cheese because it knows how to keep itself together where a taco would just crumble and fall apart, all of, it, all of itself all over the place. Um, how about this one? Uh, where to get talent? I mean, who hasn't at least thought of Googling that, right? Uh, how about this one right here? What if I hired two private investigators to follow each other? It's a very existential Google search. But maybe one of the best in the article was this. Why is Nicolas Cage on the cover of a Serbian biology textbook? Of course, I got curious about that one. So I typed that question into Google myself. And lo and behold, Nick Cage is on the cover of a Serbian biology textbook. That is a picture of him and Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona. I don't know why, but it does exist. Well, we all have questions, and obviously some questions that we have are really important, but we also have uh, lots of questions that are unimportant, as you just saw. Can we be honest? Life is hard, and with it come questions that weigh on our hearts and our minds. Think about that. Questions like, why am I here? Why does my life matter? Why do I have such crippling imposter syndrome? Um, why does my job feel like it's not as satisfying as it once was? How can I fix my marriage? Why does it seem like the world is getting more and more chaotic? Those are questions Google cannot seem to answer. So where do we go to find answers to those questions? Well, today we're beginning a new series in conjunction with hundreds of other churches around the Bay Area called Explore God. And during this series, we're going to dig into some of those big questions that when you get the answer, they have the capacity to change your life. Now, let me just say right off the bat, especially to those of you who have been invited by a friend or you found us through some of the marketing for this series, we are so glad you're here. I'll just tell you, at Crosswinds, as a church, we try to be a place where it is safe to wrestle through all of those questions. You do not have to look like or, or believe like the people around you to wrestle through your questions here safely. I hope you feel genuinely welcomed. And this series is kicking off with a question every one of us has asked. Everybody I know in some form or another has asked this, does life have a purpose? Or put up here in slightly another way that maybe is a little bit more personal, does my life matter? A little while back, there was a, a New York Times op-ed piece by a man named David French about masculinity and about how many men need more than respect, they need purpose in order to thrive. You might assume that's kind of a no-brainer. People need purpose, not just men, women too. The article itself was fine, but what was fascinating was the comment section. Uh, you ever read the comment sections after the article? While, while, while most people agreed with the author, yes, and here's how men can find their purpose, many people argued in the comment section about whether trying to find the purpose itself is the actual problem in our world today. 
Um, some people claim that our addiction to purpose is what is actually harmful and leads to things like suicide and depression and addiction. Basically, if we just decided living our lives without purpose would be enough for us and did whatever it was to make us happy in the moment instead, we would all be better off. Our problem in this world is our pursuit of purpose. It's kind of stunning to think that so many people believe that, but I will tell you, it turns out there's a biblical writer who kind of, on the surface, agrees. King Solomon, who was the third king of Israel, thousands of years ago, by far the most successful, prosperous, rich, wise king Israel ever had, traditionally attributed with the writing of a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Whether he wrote it himself or, or whether it was written from a, a, his school of thought, this book is a commentary on the meaning of life. And in this book, the speaker, over and over again, 38 times, cries out the word meaningless. The whole book starts with this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Nothing like a little positivity to get us started in this series, right? doesn't sound like Solomon would make for a really great motivational speaker. Welcome to the seminar. First off, let me tell you that everything is meaningless. Well, let, let me just tell you, in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, the, the word that is used for meaningless is hevel, hevel, which can also be translated vapor. Would you say that with me? Vapor. Here, we'll do it again. Hevel means vapor, and vapor denotes something temporary or fleeting. Usually it's something that looks solid, but as soon as you try to grab hold of it, there's just nothing there. There's no substance. It's, it's empty. Uh, to, to help us understand this, um, I have this very sophisticated vapor-producing piece of equipment right here, right? Let's try it out. That is pretty good vapor. Solomon says that everything is just vapor. Everything that you thought was solid turns out to be temporary and fleeting, even though it initially looked like something that would last. Now, if you think Solomon was just being uh, hypothetical there, right? Think again, because like I said before, this guy had everything. See, this claim he was making wasn't just abstract. It, it, was because, uh, it wasn't because it was just the cool, you know, emo thing to say at the time. He was making this claim based on his own experiences and his own failures. He actually had said this out of a conclusion he came to, driven by data in his own life. And, and in this book, he unpacks how he figured that out. For example, take a look. First, Solomon chased wisdom and knowledge. He writes this. Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we can relate to that in this area, right? Think about that. In our age of information, our culture, we idolize the person that wields information to their advantage the best. It's not just knowing facts that intrigues us. It's being able to use those facts and that information and people skills to be able to get ahead. We all want to be wise. That's why somehow CEOs of companies have become household names. It's why kids grow up wanting to be influencers instead of movie stars. It's, it's why we root for characters in movies that use their creativity and their ingenuity to save the day. Uh, it's why we like it when we're the smartest people in a room. It's also why we're willing to go into lots of debt to pursue education. 
We respect people who use their knowledge to get ahead. And the more knowledge we have, the better and more meaningful we think our life will be. We, we, we buy into this all the time. But scripture says Solomon was the wisest person to have ever walked the planet. In fact, here, I'll just say, when God asks Solomon in a dream for whatever he wants, Solomon says, Lord, I want wisdom. And God gives it to him. Larger nations around Israel start to revere them because of the impressive amount of wisdom Solomon had. He got what he wanted, wisdom and knowledge. And yet, as he looks back on that in Ecclesiastes, he writes this, I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. It doesn't take long to live in and around the Bay Area to realize that your head can be full while your heart feels empty. Okay, next, Solomon tried to find meaning in his accomplishments. Accomplishments. In Ecclesiastes 2, he writes, I undertook great projects. I, I, I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He accomplished all sorts of great things. Um, I am sure that there are many very talented people in here, but uh, has anyone here built a house, a vineyard, a reservoir, and a massive temple in Jerusalem? Anybody done that? Solomon did all of those things and still didn't find the meaning of life. But we, look, we often try to fill our resumes with all kinds of accomplishments. Accomplishment in the Bay Area is the air that we breathe. Um, if you were to sum up our culture in just a few statements, um, we might say, move fast and break things and, and make something people want, right? We, we want our resumes to be shiny and we, we want our dreams and our aspirations to be larger than life and we never ever want to stop moving forward. Like contentment is not our strong suit. And in the end, even all of our accomplishments, they're vapor, they're meaningless. If I can just be honest with you, uh, at times I find myself buying into this lie. That, that I am the sum of my accomplishments. So what I do is I strive, and then I strive more, and then I strive even more. And what I've noticed is that it gets exhausting. And it is never as meaningful as I thought it would be. Okay, well Solomon thought, well surely if it's not accomplishments, if it's not wisdom and knowledge, then it's pleasure. Pleasure is what it's all about. Maybe I can find pursuit, uh, purpose and satisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure. But in verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Solomon, just so you know, he lived the eat, drink and be merry lifestyle. Never went without. If he saw something, it was his and yet he still found it meaningless. Now I know what you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Solomon just didn't do pleasure right. Like if it were me, if I could get anything I wanted, I would know how to do it in such a way that I would be satisfied. But the problem is with pleasure, it is never enough. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. Let me just read this to you. An ever increasing craving for an ever decreasing pleasure. You ever feel like that's what's happening in your life? an increased craving for a decreasing pleasure in the end. Even that is meaningless. Next, Solomon sought out wealth 
Wealth will do it for me. I amass silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces, yet wealth left him feeling like he never had enough. Another search that looks solid but proves fleeting. By the way, when I was doing this at the outdoor service, I accidentally had it twisted to the squirt mode. (laughs) Big problems out there, so. King Solomon had it all. By all accounts, he should have been content with all of these things, yet he wasn't. Everything he grabbed hold of had no substance. All of this reminds me of something uh, Jim Carrey, the actor and the comedian said. He, He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. So what, what is the answer? If it's not knowledge and wisdom, if it's not accomplishments, if it's not wealth, if it's not pleasure, what in the world is it? Well, let me share with you Solomon's conclusion. Here's what he says. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of this matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Did you catch that? In light of everything Solomon saw and experienced, his conclusion is we should fear God and keep his commandments. Now, as I say that, that might be an incredible letdown to you. Wait a second, I'm supposed to be afraid of God and obey him? That's the purpose of life? God put me here to be afraid? No, that word fear carries with it a sense of reverence, of awe. And essentially what he's saying is, do you wanna find meaning? Do you wanna find true purpose in life? There is no purpose or meaning apart from some kind of relationship with God. Every single one of us, every single person you will ever meet is created by a loving God for one primary purpose, to live in relationship with him. We were created, we are created, not simply to know about God, wisdom, knowledge. You were created to know him personally. The early Christian theologian Augustine came to the same conclusion. Here's what he said. You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in thee. You were made to be in a relationship with God. And that is exactly why when we chase after all the things Solomon chased after, there is still a deep restlessness that nags at us. The point of that restlessness is and always has been to lead us home, to lead us back to God, back to the relationship that we were created for in the first place. In a world of vapors, God is the one true solid the one that we can rest in, the one we can rest on, the only one we can truly hold on to. Now, in light of all of that, I wanna issue a couple of challenges to you this morning. First, if you're here today and you don't buy into any of this God stuff, or you're wrestling with what you do believe, again, I just wanna commend you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here, and and I wanna invite you to keep doing what we're doing in this series, which is Explore God. Um, For the next few weeks, we're going to continue to wrestle with these questions, and I I hope you'll join us if you're in that spot. Anybody wrestling with what you believe about God, hope you'll join us, but here is a challenge for you today, all right? Um, The 17th century mathematician, Blaise Pascal, had one of the greatest intellects in in the history of Western civilization. He grew up knowing uh, not just, uh, he knew about God, but he didn't actually follow God. 
And one night, in a profound middle of the night experience with God, he had a change of heart. And that experience ignited a passion in him to help other people find their way back to God. And what Pascal would do, he began to challenge his fellow intellectuals to a wager on God. He would dare them to step into a belief about God and see if it didn't change their lives. And Pascal explained his wager this way. I'll put up a paraphrase of it. Here's, here's what it was. Make a bet that there is a God who loves you. And if you're right, you have everything to gain. And if you're wrong, you have nothing to lose. Make a bet that God is real. Now just think about that. You have a choice every single day that you make. You, you get to choose to live as if God is real and he loves you and wants a relationship with you. Or you can choose to live as if he is not. And just because you're uncertain doesn't mean you have to choose to live without God. Pascal would say, you are better off betting that he is real and loves you than he isn't and he doesn't. And if you're wrestling with what you believe, I wanna challenge to you today. Will you place a bet on God? That may seem weird uh, that I'm talking about betting in church. Uh, I am from Las Vegas, but also a bet a bet is simply the decision to risk something on a, a possible positive outcome, right? That's what a bet is. And here's the risk I would just ask you to take. Take Pascal's wager. Pray to God. And this may seem awkward at first if you're not used to it, but I want you to try it. Talk to God. Be open to the possibility that God is waiting and he's listening and he's eager to respond to you. And here is the prayer. I wanna challenge you to pray every day for the next seven days. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Would you read that with me? God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Pray that prayer sincerely and wholeheartedly and then look for God to make himself known to you in unexpected ways this week. Now. For those of you who already consider yourself Christ followers, here's your challenge. I want to invite you to pray the same prayer. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, why would I pray that? I already believe in God. Because the truth is, what we say we believe and how we live are not always the same thing. There's a big difference between believing in God and then living our lives as if that is true. In fact, one of the fastest growing religions in the United States is this thing we call practical atheism, which is proclaiming a belief in God, but living as if he doesn't really exist. And I think this morning we should be asking ourselves, am I truly grabbing hold of God or am I still grasping at vapors? What am I doing? I'll tell you, Jesus saw that tendency in us to go for the vapors. He recognized all the times that we scramble to try and find life and fulfillment outside of God. He came to wake us up, to make us aware of what really matters so we don't spend our whole life pursuing the things that will never bring us purpose. In fact, in the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, he echoed what Solomon had learned earlier about what really matters. Jesus said this, here's the bottom line. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink. Don't worry about how you clothe your body. Living is about more than merely eating and the body's about more than dressing up. What he's saying is, don't chase after all this stuff that you think will fulfill you. Instead, 
He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of those things will be given to you. What does Jesus say to seek first? His kingdom, not our own. And all the things we really need, the things we so often lose sleep trying to pursue or get more of, they'll be taken care of. He's saying, bet on God. Trust that he's good and watch your life begin to radically transform. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. This week, let's all ask God to show us that true life, a life of purpose, comes from seeking our purpose in him. If each of us here were to truly live, not only as if God exists, but but like he cares for us and has a purpose, a plan for us, what would change in your life? What would change in your family? What would change in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in our city? Imagine if we all lived as if God were with us always. What would change in this world? Let me say it again. Jesus came to wake us up. Make us aware of of what we already have been spending our whole lives pursuing and how it does not bring us purpose. God does. He, He came to tell us, don't spend your life on vapor management. Maybe C.S. Lewis put this best. Here's what he said. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. What a powerful truth that is. If you're seeking happiness and peace and meaning and and purpose, God says, seek me first. I am the source of life that you were created for. 